Oh, Andrea Tessman. Yes, Kirk Buster. I have a question, a question for you. On August 24th, 1974, do you remember what you were doing? Oh, probably floating around somewhere in space as a soul without a body, yes. Wow, how, how, how very Scientologist of you. Well, I'm running out of ways to say I wasn't born yet. Well, it was it was a clever one. I, however, was. It would have been a day before me turning two. Apparently my first words were bad baby, so that sort of sums it all up. But Makes sense. Yeah, I guess. If you were if you went to the movie theaters, you were probably watching Burt Reynolds again in the longest yard. Richard Nixon just resigned the, from the presidency, effective 16 days before. Roe versus Wade was one year old, and that kind of ties into something that we might have heard on the radio if you were so inclined to turn on that turn on that dial. Paul Anka, Canada's own, went number one for the fourth time in his life, and the first time in 14 years with you're having my baby. <laughs> I, I I know this was my choice. I don't know why I picked it. But I did. I don't bother. But uh, I think it, it's an interesting choice. It, it, um, yes. <laughs> I, you know... I, I gotta say... I, I didn't know a whole lot about Paul Anka, except, like, I knew he wrote uh, Mom Way, and I knew he wrote, I didn't realize how prolific of a writer he was for other people. Um, I knew he was Canadian, he was an old-school Vegas-style owner, and um, so I, like, I learned a lot about him. Um, the song itself is, although it, it was, his, as you said, his first hit in 14 years, it's a pretty terrible song. It's horrible. I, I really don't know how the fuck this got to number one. And, and I guess uh, that's what we have to try to analyze. <laughs> I don't so know either. It's been, it's, it's been touted as one of the worst songs of all time. Mm-hmm. Um, like, it's just... The, the lyrics are cheesy, the... the Melody is catchy. I suppose that makes a difference. Um, but it, it is the worst. It's um, it's swooning, sentimental, but also awkward and cringy. Yeah, and you mentioned how it's on a lot of worst lists. Uh, I actually wrote about this before, uh, and I think I brought this up on the show uh, that about seven years ago, one of the one of the first things uploaded on the site. Uh, this one all written by me, most of the shit on the site's written by me, not all of it, uh, was the top 100 worst songs in pop culture. I, I ranked this number 10, and I mentioned i got to redo it to add some other stuff that has been, is some other crap that's been put out this last seven years. Uh, I'm going to repeat a line I wrote, and I think I mentioned to you, I write so much, and I'm usually half in the bag when I'm writing. I'm, not, I'm completely sober right now, by the way. Now, I don't remember almost everything, anything I wrote, so this is almost brand new to me. The last line I wrote was, Thankfully, Anka didn't sing about the next time he slipped one past the goalie and he found his songwriting inspiration elsewhere in the future. 
dear. Yeah, and but Anka, I forgot. Just like what an absolute legend this guy was. Us uh, and and there's a lot of people who think like yourself who wasn't even aware. Like in the late fifties, I I came to knowing that a lot later in my life. I think mostly because of my dad. He had his three hit top three hit top number one hits were all in the late fifties. Uh, uh, Lonely Boy, Diana, and what was the other one? Put Your Head on My Shoulders was number two. So that and that one's a pretty iconic song from the late fifties, early sixties. Uh-huh. Uh, what was that other number one song? Well, maybe it was only the two. Oh, well, this was his third number one song, so I apologize for that. But yeah, I, I guess I always think "Put Your Head on My Shoulders," the one I know mostly from him, uh, only went only went number two. Like like that's like that's a failure. But the one interesting thing when you're a late fifties teen idol, and that's what he was. Paul Anka was he wasn't tall, dark, and handsome, but he was short, dark, and handsome. And there was a lot of girls, teen and girls, who just gushed over him. But he wasn't so much manufactured. He wrote all his shit. Oh, yeah. And he wrote a lot of other people's shit, too. Mm-hmm. So he was doing this. Uh, like, Diana, he wrote at age 16 about, uh, I think he said it was about his uh, babysitter. His, just, yeah, his younger sibling's babysitter. Well, his younger sibling's babysitter. Okay. Yeah, that would have been better if it was about his babysitter. I would hope he wouldn't need a babysitter at 16. Well, I... I we're Canadians that we're raised differently. Maybe. <laughs> Maybe. Maybe. So this guy was massively successful. One of the most, I wouldn't put him in the, like the, the Elvis category, but I think from the late fifties era of rock and rock and pop top 25. Yeah. Or if not close to, I mean, like massively successful, didn't really, ha- didn't achieve his success in Canada first, did it all in the U.S., uh, pretty much self-made. One of the things I learned, too, mm-hmm. just everything he did in the 60s as his career, I don't want to say winding down, because that's not really fair. He was producing and creating music all throughout the 60s, not a lo- with varying degrees of success. I didn't know about that he wrote... Uh, or he helped compose, along with Johnny Carson, the Tonight Show theme. Yep. Yeah, I didn't know that until I started looking into this either. That's, that's, inc- that's incredible. So he would have done that at 21 or 22. So, like, mass- yeah, yeah, I mean... Go ahead. Well, he wrote Diana, which is, like, his most... Well, you said at 16, and that's, like, one of his most successful mm-hmm. pieces of music, like... As a teenager, that's that's incredible. Yeah, and another, um, and also too, I didn't even realize this until recently. Uh, Buddy Holly's uh, posthumous hit, "It Doesn't Matter Anymore," that's his. Yeah, and he actually donated all of the royalties of that to Buddy Holly's family. So before we sort of get into the early seventies, you're a female, right? I am. All right. I don't know why I sort of worded it that way, but you never know. I have changed my mind about that in the four years since uh, I've seen you last. Well, that, that could be. I mean, people diff- have certain different <laughs> inter- interpretations of what they are. Uh, but does Paul Anka have a certain sexiness when you were looking back at old uh, videos of him? He's he's 
an attractive man. Okay. Um, there's nothing about the 1970s style that's attractive. Yeah, but that's it. that's everybody. Yeah, exactly. But you know, he's he's got handsome features. See, because I, I look at him, and he, and like when I look at him as a teen, I mean, I can see why girls would gush over him. Uh, when I looked at him, you know, in the seventies, and he, like in even later interviews, I remember seeing an interview with him on, I want to say, I think it was Howard Stern, like twenty two thousand nine, uh, when he was just talking about how, uh, and as you mentioned, he wrote My Way uh, for Sinatra, and he's got a certain presence to him, and sometimes I think mm-hmm. presence makes up for looks, if, if that makes any sense. Oh, it absolutely does. Um, attitude, presence, there's, there's a je ne sais quoi about, about people that aren't necessarily traditionally handsome, but are still very attractive. And, and he, yeah, so he's got that it factor. So I think in the early 70s, because as we mentioned, he still put out, like he still had songs that charted, but nothing big. And then all of a sudden, so you, you got to figure, he probably wrote hundreds of songs. Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Composed hundreds of songs and just put out hundreds of songs. And now here we have a song about impregnation that somehow goes to the top of the charts in 1974. He hadn't had anything remotely successful like this. In over 10 years. So how? So he changed record labels. Mm-hmm. And this was the first, one of the first things he put out with his new record label. Um, I, I have a feeling that he kind of wrote it. Like, while I really feel that the song is super cringy, I think he really did mean it as a love song to his pregnant wife. Sure. Like, he probably just wrote it as something he was singing to her, like, you know, Whenever it's not, I, I don't know that he even intended to release it. Um, and it could be something that the new record label decided, Hey, let's try this. You know, we're going to, we're trying to rebrand you a little bit because you haven't had any success in 15 years, 14 years, whatever. So my thought really is that it was just, it really was meant to just be sort of a, a sweet tribute to his pregnant wife. He, by the time they released it, they had four daughters, so he could have written it at any time. I don't know. Did you see anywhere if he said when he wrote it? Cor- uh, like, I don't think he purposely wrote it at that for that release. He apparently he wrote it when he was performing in Lake Tahoe. Huh. So I guess that would so, have been around like when he was already sort of in indirectly in the senior circuit. Hmm. Um, so, and I think that, I think it's a little tone deaf, pardon the pun. Um, really the, the, the biggest problem I have with it is the bridge. That it talk about how you didn't have to keep it. You could have swept it away. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, you're, you're so happy about her having her 50 and now you're going to bring abortion in it, into it. And it's, the abortion issue is so raw with the recent Roe v. Wade and the, I think he pissed off the pro-life people with that part of the song and he pissed off the pro-choice people with the rest of the song. Well, just acknowledging that abortion was possible. Acknowledging also the, the kind of light 
lighthearted nature of the way he's bringing up a very serious subject. Um, and that, I think, is, is the, the part of the song that just doesn't work. The, the controversial, he should have said having our baby, not having my baby. But yes, true. I get with the way he's singing, the style of the song, having my baby falls off, like rolls off the tongue easier than having our baby. It's just a little too vowel-y. Um, so that's, I mean, that pissed off the, the, you know, women's lib movement and things like that. But overall, I don't think he meant any harm. I don't think it's intentional misogynistic. I'm going to, I'm going to sing that lyric and just see if you laugh. That's your challenge. Okay. Didn't have to keep it. Wouldn't put you through it. You could have swept it from your life, but you wouldn't do it. No, you wouldn't do it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if it's the song or you singing, but well, I, yeah, I, 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 don't, I don't sing as well as, as yourself. I don't sing as well as anyone, for that matter. Yeah. <sighs> You know what? Everybody can sing. No, 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 we can't. Yeah, and other other things in that, uh, in that I, I like this part. The need inside you, I see it showing. Whoa, the seed inside you, baby, do you feel it growing? <laughs> yeah, that one's really strange, too. I also found, so it's a, and I'm using air quotes here, duet. Mm. Um... But really, it's just the woman's part, um, which was sung by what? Ah, what is her name? Uh, Odelia Coates. Odelia Coates. She's echoing him in a couple of lines towards the end. And if you watch the live performance of it, she's sitting off to the side in the shadows, singing. Um, well, did, and if you, did, you you can tell it was never intended as a duet because a woman would never agree if she was involved in the writing process to those lyrics of I, I think there's something more to it than that though Andrea what you think they were having an affair she was his protege in some ways and she um, I mean there's a lot to be said for taking an African American woman on tour with that's you where I'm going with this now remember this is 1974 so you probably saw the only live version w- with him and her that I did on the Midnight yeah. Special, which uh, for anyone who hasn't seen those, just Google some of that on YouTube. It's a lot of fun, just a lot of live 70s performances, because uh, most things in the 70s that you'll find are lip synced. These are not. And it's, it's, it's a lot of fun. It takes me back. Uh, but... 74, we're only seven years removed from the first ever interracial kiss on television. Mm-hmm. You know who that was? No. That was my namesake, Captain Kirk. Did that with Uhuru. I didn't know that. I thought it was, in fact, you're honestly going to say it was with some alien. It was with what? With who? Uh, with, with an alien. He was always making out with aliens. Well, I mean, I mean, if I'm going to be named after someone, I mean, like, he didn't care what color it was. It's, uh, he was very progressive. <laughs> he was, yeah. He, he was. It's like, uh, are, the, are, all, are all the parts in the right place? I'm trying to do a Shatner. I can't really do it. 
are all the right parts in the right place. It doesn't matter, because if there's a hole, I'll find it. <laughs> That's a pretty good Shatner. You just have to pop in some of the wrong places. It, it actually sounds more like my Chandler, which isn't all that far oh. off. Chandler from Friends. And yeah, also too, like three years before that, there was, I don't know if it was the first uh, interracial kid. I'm sure it wasn't, but it was in a really big movie with Charlton Heston in The Omega Man. That was like in his 70s sci-fi career, which like it was a film that did well. So this, I, I don't know that they even wanted to put her on the same stage. I mean, they easily could have. Mm-hmm. But and maybe I'm seeing something that's not there. I don't know. But I mean, like when you're talking about like, hey, I'm having your kid. Clearly they had some intercourse, like lyrically speaking. So maybe that's not something they really want to put on television. Maybe the producer said, let's just keep her here. Or maybe it's like you said, it's just like, well, she's not supposed to be here. I mean, hey, you, you got to even show up here. You get you got to check. You're on TV. You can tell your you can tell your mom. Tune in. Yeah. I think. Oh, and I I don't yeah. think I think given the the situation and the the era, her being off the side of the stage is not strange at all. Um, my comment was honestly more about how terrible the lyric of oh. I'm a woman in love and I love what it's doing to me. Mm. Having my baby. I'm a woman in love and I love what's going through me. Can you, can you sing, no woman can, can you, can you sing would that? ever write that lyric. Ever. Well, if, Andrea, if you sing it, maybe it'll seem more... I'm a woman in love and I love what it's doing to me. <laughs> Having my baby. I'm a woman in love and I love what's going through me. So now that you've sung it, no. does it seem more natural? No. Okay. <laughs> you, you know, I, I want to go back to, to when you were talking about the, uh, the 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 abortion part. I honestly uh-huh. think Anka is thinking, you know what? I'm being really woke here. I mean, nobody said the word woke then. Nobody said the word woke like four or five years ago. But no, he said he said he's a liver. Yes, I'm a liver. Yeah. I think he. I really do think he was trying to relate the women's lib movement and just really fell short. Well, I mean, I think that's sometimes when you're trying to identify with something that you can't possibly identify with. We tried. I, so, yeah, we, we talked about, or you mentioned the criticism. So there's two specific criticisms that, that he got that was given just specifically just for this moment, I think. So you probably saw that too. The National Organization for Women gave Anka the Keeper in Her Place Award. Yep. Uh, which I, I tried to see who, if anyone else ever won that award. I couldn't fig- find any other time that they've ever done this. I wonder if they created it just for Anka. I think they did. Same with Ms. Magazine awarding Anka the Male Chauvinist Pig of the Year Award. I'm sure that there was a lot of people in Saudi Arabia who were relieved because they thought that for sure they were going to win that. <laughs> like, really? He's the most... I, I don't know. I, I look back at that. It's like, 
you know, obviously he meant well. Like, is he really a male chauvinist pig? Or, or did women back then maybe look at this just completely wrong? I think it's just a, it's mostly poor timing mm-hmm. and maybe just missing the mark with a few of the lyrics. People still love it. If you read any of the comments on the YouTube videos I of did. it and comments on the articles and talk about singing it to their wives when they're pregnant and how sweet it is and women talk about how their husbands have sung it to them or you know, memories of their dad singing it to their mom. and like People really relate to the sweetness and the intent of it. And I think people just forget about second half of it. Because they, 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 well, they do that with almost every song. You can take almost any that's song that's, been, that, that's uh, popular or that's done very well and people are going to remember just bits and pieces of it. I mean, I, t- I talked to my dad about that. He says, oh, that seemed like a, you know, a nice song. Like, and I'm sure to him it was. And then I sang, yeah, sang the so word. I think it really, I think it really did appeal to the people that hear the surface and don't, they're not really paying attention to what, what, you know, I don't think there's even a deeper meaning. I think that the deeper meaning is, is something that people are reading into that wasn't necessarily intended. And you got to hand it to Anka. He parlayed that into a second career, uh, second performing career, I should say, of just a lot of adult contemporary hits. Because from 74 uh-huh. to 76, he had four top ten hits, so three other ones, uh, all with uh, Odia, Odia Codes, uh-huh. uh, five, uh, six that w- were top ten in adult contemporary, and I'm, or actually seven, sorry about that. I'm not a fan of adult contemporary music, but if you're doing that, you're on tour, you're now selling out more buildings, you're doing well. Uh-huh. And, you know, kudos on him. I mean, for someone who's super successful in the late 50s to have a second career in the 70s, there's only a handful of artists that could say that. Very, very I few. read somewhere a quote where he was saying that uh, he he really credits the fact that he stayed relevant by by writing for other people. Mm-hmm. He, he was able to kind of maintain his relevance his own performer by by writing for Jones and for Sinatra and for other people that had success with his music as well. And I can see that. Sometimes I can with a really good writer, you're not just writing what suits you personally. Um, I think we saw that with Sinead O'Connor and Prince. Mm-hmm. We can probably agree that Prince is a brilliant lyricist and um, you know one of the best of our times she did a better job of his song than he did so I think that that happens and sometimes someone like Paul Anka you need to give up some of those songs to people that they're more suited to did you notice too that he also uh, had the last couple hits for Michael Jackson yeah yeah, one he they wrote them in the eighties, and then they didn't get released until the like 
closer to Jackson's death, mm-hmm. and he actually had to fight for royalties because they weren't going to acknowledge him, but he got 50% of the royalties on it. I mean, that's just insane. I can't, I, I, like, the song in question was, this is it, like, that, which I believe was for that documentary that, was that released posthumously? I think so. It could have been, yeah. Okay. I can't think of anyone who wrote specifically for Sinatra and Michael Jackson. How do you not want to talk to this guy? I don't care that he put out this drack. I want to hang out with Paul Anka and just hear that story. How does that, how is that possible? I saw that he has an autobiography out, and I really want to read it now, because it seems like there's some, he, he kind of dishes the goods on Sammy Davis Jr. and on on um, Tom Jones and on writing for Michael Jackson, and like, mm. it, it seems like if it's well-written, it could be very interesting. Yeah, he also, you mentioned Tom Jones, yeah, he also wrote She's a Lady. She's a Lady. Whoa, yeah. whoa, whoa. Yeah, and that wouldn't work for Anka. No. No, he's too soft, I think, for for that kind of, well, Tom Jonesiness. So while I was doing this, the only album of his that I listened completely, and you probably already know which one, because I, I sent you off uh, the YouTube of him covering Smells Like Teen Spirit. <laughs> and That's so good. It is. And like, he just made it all like all swing music, you know, with the oh, whole yeah. orchestra, he, everything. He it up and yeah, it's like, um, Johnny, have you ever listened to Johnny Farage? No, but it sounds In like 90s, something that I would love. He did, he did swing covers, like lounge swing covers of all sorts of hard rock. And it is, it's pretty brilliant if you if you enjoy that kind of humor. You know, you went down the Shatner route. Once Shatner realized, you know what? Uh, I've got a second, or really a third life just making fun of myself. Uh-huh. And Paul Anka kind of did, he did that half halfway, and the other half was like, okay, I'm going to make fun of myself, but I'm going to do it so well that I've literally turned this into something completely different. Did you see the track yeah, listing on that? The which? Okay, the track listing on that 2005 album, Rock Swings. I didn't look at the track listing, okay. no. All right, so he, It's My Life, the covering Bon Jovi. Uh, yeah. True by Spandau Ballet. Eye of the Tiger, Survivor. R.E.M.'s Everybody Hurts. I can see him doing that. Like I can, I can hear that one. I did see Black Hole Sun. Yeah, that that, that one. Uh, Oasis's Wonderwall. It's a sin by the Pet Shop Boys, and just to prove that we're keeping everything on point, jump, Van Halen. <laughs> uh, hello, Lionel Richie. That doesn't need any help to be schmaltzy and shit. Eyes without a face, Billy Idol. Love Cats, The Cure, Michael Jackson, The Way You Make Me Feel, and then uh, finishes off with a weak one. Uh, Tears in Heaven, Eric Clapton. That's just fun. Do you know that uh, John Bon Jovi was actually guitar, piano, and backing vocals on that CD? Oh, was it? Okay. (laughs) That's awesome. 
I just happened to look up the thing. Oh, yes, yeah, so it is. He had a few big names on that, uh, that record. Holy crap. The amount of musicians on this. When we, when we did Ballad of the Green Beret, there was like two. <laughs> With eight drummers. <laughs> My God. So Paul Lank is still alive. He's uh, still a very interesting man. Uh, I'm not happy I listened to the song over and over, but I am happy we talked about him, if that makes any sense at all. Yeah, I built up some respect for this uh, Canadian musician that I just only barely knew about before. So what do we? What, what do you have on tap? You get to we do alternating weeks. So here's my thought: we're going to jump back to 1968. Oh, okay. We're going to um, do a song by a musician who's the only person who's ever had both an instrumental and a vocal hit, number one hit. Okay. Any thoughts on who it is? The only He's better name... known as a trumpet player. Okay, then I know exactly who this is, because I was looking at this, uh, I was looking at doing Rise. Nice. Well, I was thinking we're going to do This Guy's in Love With You, not Rise. Okay. But it is Herb Alpert. Um... I don't believe the Tijuana Brass is actually in the title of this one, but it's Herb Alfred in the Tijuana Brass, because okay. that's just what it is. All right. Um, what, what, what's so the, can I what's can the, I just tell why I picked this song? Because it's a funny story. Yeah, please. First of all, first of all, we, you know, Dan Halen's been on the news a lot, and so the song, this this uh, podcast is basically, I mean, the title of it is "How the Fuck Did This Get Number One." And there's been a few things recently talking about about charts lately and how Van Halen currently has something like 10 songs in the top 50 right now. Like, they're pushing out crap songs and making a reemergence because that's what's in the news. Mm-hmm. And it might be, like, the top songs, but it's in, like, the um, top downloads and things like that. So people, so there's varying reasons why people make the charts. Um, and sometimes it's not new music, sometimes it's because an event happens. So I have to admit that this is not my favorite podcast. This is my second favorite podcast. Um, I have a dirty little secret. There's a podcast I absolutely love, and don't judge me, it's a comedy podcast called My Dad Wrote a Porno. And it's this guy reading this absolutely atrocious adult erotic book that his 60-year-old father wrote, and his two friends just completely taking the piss out of it, and it is hysterical, and so in one episode, there's a reference to a Alpert song, mm-hmm. and these three 30-ish-year-old Brits don't know who Herb Alpert is, they think he's just some American folk musician, so they get their 8 million followers to go and try to download this song and just, oh, help out this poor guy. And they actually get 1960s or 70s random one-off, like, odd song from Herb Alpert to, I think they make it to the top 40 adult contemporary chart um, in, like, 2017. 
And and then they come to the realization that Herb Alpert is actually an extremely successful musician and producer and doesn't really need any help getting on the charts. <laughs> but the whole thing was, it was really like a, a really funny way of them being like, oh, you know, throw a bucket at the guy and download the song. <laughs> Is, so anyway, is this at least the favorite podcast that you're in? What? No, no, no. This is just a podcast that I love. It's really terrible. Yeah, but is this your it's favorite really one that you're really actually fun. in? You said your favorite podcast was this other one, and it's not this one. Oh, this is my favorite podcast that I'm actually in. Okay. This is the only podcast that I'm in. Um, well, you didn't, so need, you didn't need to be so honest be there, <laughs> So anyways, that's how I came to decide that we had to have Herb Alpert on our podcast. Okay. Uh, I looked at this for doing Rise, but this, yeah, why not? We can talk about Rise, too. I don't know how much we actually have to say about this guy's in love with you, except that it's in a billion TV shows and movies. What works? I mean, like talking about a a super successful guy who you wouldn't think is this successful. He, he doesn't strike. He doesn't come out at you like, man, this, this guy's a, had had a number one in the '60s and the '70s, and he's been working since the '50s. What I was really surprised by is that Spanish Flea was not the number one song. Yes. So we got a good one. We got a good one. I, I, I love it. Oh, I love it. So we're going to be recording a little bit later next week. Uh, what? Because I, yeah, because the the chairman's got to do a, a a mock a mock committee in the pro football world. I'm going to plug that a little bit. So for football fans, because there's a lot of cross reference of songs in football. No, there's not none. Okay, well I tried. There is if you're in Glee. Yeah. How did that get referenced <laughs> twice? Jesus. Just, I know how much you love musicals. <laughs> yeah, that's all I need is more hate mail. <laughs> all I need. He was just disappointed, Brad. Just disappointed. Yeah, well, usually I disappoint women. I've never disappointed a man before. <laughs> so, your, uh, your football reference what is it you're doing that i'm eagerly awaiting to listen to we're gonna what are we doing uh doing a mock committee uh we may we may or may not actually do that uh i don't know whether it's going to be put out on the site it just might be something where we're figuring out how easy or how hard it is to do what actual hall of fame committees do So instead of putting it out for all of us to randomly vote on your your not in Hall of Fame list, you're going to try to do it like in a Zoom meet. Yeah, yeah. Basically, uh, the Pro Football Hall of Fame has got uh, 125 or is it 127 preliminary nominees, and in November they pare it down to 25. So we're going to pretend that we're that committee and come up with the 25 who we think are the most deserving to go forward. Yeah, so I'm not sure how many of them are, would be comfortable to have this all on for everyone to dissect and listen to. So that's why it may or may not go on the site. But the results will. 
So we'll see how that one goes. Always trying something new here at notinhalloffame.com. That's sort of how Chandler would have said it. Probably, yes. Probably. Awesome. So we will talk on Wednesday then. Absolutely. Sounds good. All right. Stay safe, Andrea. Thank you all for listening. We hope everyone out there is staying safe. Look for a lot more content from us at notinhalloffame.com coming soon. Take care, everyone.